A warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us this Thursday for a special Songs of the Summer start to the programme, the First Move jukebox, firing up the greatest hits to ensure your summer sizzles, including the heat is on. New estimates from the Atlanta Federal Reserve showing the US economy growing at a hot-blooded 5.8% annual rate in the current quarter. The strong outlook helping send benchmark US bond yields to 50 year highs. And then throw in Wednesday's minutes of the Federal Reserve's last meeting. It shows officials haven't ruled out hiking further. Fed Chair Powell's message to markets, see you in September when the next central bank policy meeting takes place. Also in earnings today, Good Vibrations, the largest American retailer, Walmart, reporting strong Q2 results and raising its yearly forecast as U.S. consumers continue to spend. We've also had tech giant Cisco hire in pre-market trade, too, after positive earnings report from them. But a cruel summer for China. As American growth accelerates, China's economy has spluttered with continued calls for more Beijing-based stimulus. J.P. Morgan and Barclays cutting their China growth forecasts amid concerns particularly about further weakness in the giant property market there. China's woes continue to help pressure Asia's stocks. A modest rise, as you can see, in Shanghai. But the Hang Seng now has fallen for five straight sessions. It's now down around 7% so far this year. And in fact, it's nearing bear market territory. So I'm talking about a 20% drop from its most recent highs. In the meantime, let me give you a look at what's happening on Wall Street. Green on the screen pre-market after two days, in fact, of sharp losses driven in part by those interest rate concerns, I think, and China. European shares, however, remain near five-week lows. Plenty to get to, as always, throughout the next hour. But we do begin in Ukraine, where officials say they're not expecting American F-16 fighter jets to be delivered this year. Ukraine's Air Force says progress is being made with pilot training, but it's not expecting to operate those F-16s this coming autumn and winter. Kiev, of course, has repeatedly asked Western allies to provide those jets. And in other developments, a Russian missile attack left 10,000 people without power in the eastern Dnipropetrovsk region. And Nick Peyton Walsh is there with more. Nick, what can you tell us about that attack? Yeah, another uh, chilling example of yeah. Russia's bids to hit infrastructure. But I think it's important, too, to put some context around the news about the F-16s not arriving this year. The hope that they could be expedited to the battlefield was at times ambitious, certainly. It's a big technical challenge to train up uh, Ukrainian technicians to be sure they can provide the extraordinary amount of servicing and repair that high-tech jets like that require. Then there was pilot training, too, something I'm sure that was feasible. It doesn't seem, though, that NATO has been able to put that together fast enough. And it is essentially what Ukraine is so deeply lacking on the battlefield here. The counter-offensive slowed by the fact Russia has air superiority. But as we saw yesterday, they are still moving forward, taking new ground. And we're on the outskirts of Urozhenye, which yesterday Ukraine announced had been recaptured. There may be ruin around them, but their direction is forwards. We're with the 35th Ukrainian Marines the first reporters to get to the outskirts of Urozhenye. Yet another village announced liberated Wednesday. The victories may be small, 
but a constant. So, just down here, Orojania, yet another town taken as the counter-offensive does move forwards. We were just seeing the neighbouring village taken last week, but they keep moving. Okay. That much incoming, we're getting out of here as quick as we can. While they control Orozhania, the Russians do everything they can to make it a nightmare for the Ukrainians to be there. The unit showed us the intense fight captured by drone. This, their tank advancing, dropping a string of anti-mine explosives behind it, they said, which then, once it turned, detonated. The unit released a video of them in the town Wednesday, of how they turned their firepower on what was once a Russian stronghold that shelled them. The company commander recalls many more Russians hidden there than he expected. Very many died, he says especially when they started to run, and when they held houses, lots of them died there. But they were caught as they fled. The smoke around Russians, likely made by cluster munitions. Ukraine has said it is already using some rounds controversially supplied by the United States. We could not confirm if these fired here were the new American cluster bombs, but the losses suffered were clear and they say their use is less of an ethical dilemma when you're in this brutal fight. I don't understand it, he says. That side is using whatever they want. Our people are dying from all this, and it's okay. But when the other side die, it's not. I don't understand. His footage shows how young some in the assault were. He has no time for Western analysts who say this should be moving faster. I would say they can always come to me as a guest and fight with me, he says. If someone believes that you can fly over the minefield on a broom like in Harry Potter, it doesn't happen in a real fight. If you don't understand that, you can sit in your armchair and eat your popcorn. Yeah, you smell it. Out here, the last month of advances feel both empty and gruelling, littered now with Russian dead. They haven't moved, perhaps, as far as it has felt. These just empty farm fields in which many have died to take each kilometre. The Russians mined so hard here, they used this machine to do it. So much damage done, it's hard to imagine what plans Moscow had for here at all, had they kept it. Now, Julia, let's give you some context about Orozhene, why it's important. About two weeks ago, Staromayorsky, a village across from Orozhene on the other side of the river, was taken by the Ukrainians. But as they were there, they found themselves constantly hit by the Russians on the other side of the river, right in Orozhene, which has now fallen to the Ukrainians. And so while these villages sound incremental, they are tiny, it is a sign that they continue to fall, that Ukraine is making the progress that it wants. It's incredibly slow. It's incredibly hard. Uh, but I think, as you heard there, Ukrainian soldiers who've been doing that fight themselves find some of the impatience in the West for faster results uh, impalatable. Julia? Yeah, understandably. Nick Payton-Walsh, thank you for that report. 
Now, devastating update too from Hawaii. At least 111 people, including children, now confirmed to have lost their lives in the massive wildfires on the island of Maui. Search teams have covered now around 40% of the area impacted. The governor estimating more than 1,000 people, though, could still be missing. Gloria Pasmino joins us now. Gloria, it's that uncertainty, I think, that's just adding to the heartbreak for people there. Absolutely, Julia. You can feel it uh, when you are in Lahaina that people are absolutely devastated by what's happened here. We are standing at a checkpoint that leads into Lahaina. The road is currently closed right now, but it's going to open up in a few hours, allowing residents, workers and volunteers back into the area. Now, the impact zone, the disaster zone of this fire remains restricted, closed off to everyone. And that's because there's a critical mission underway there to find any possible human remains. Now, it is painstaking work. There's a team of about 40 cadaver dogs that is looking through the scene, hoping to find any uh, any human remains. And every official who we have spoken to tells us that the scene is absolutely catastrophic. They've also confirmed to us that there is evidence of children among the dead. Now, 38% of the zone has been covered. And as that process plays out, the people of Lahaina are looking for answers. They want to know why the island's alarm system was not deployed to warn them to warn them about the incoming danger. And officials here have frankly been defensive about the, that decision. They've said that the alarm system is designed to warn people about incoming tsunamis and that the protocol for that is to seek higher ground. In this instance, that means it would have sent people right into the mountainside where the fires were burning. Now, the governor has ordered an investigation into every decision that was made and into what might have gone wrong here. And in the meantime, aid is starting to slowly arrive here. The roads have opened back up, allowing Lahaina to be connected to the rest of the island. And next week on Monday, President Joe Biden and First Lady Jill Biden will visit Lahaina to get a firsthand look at the devastation for themselves and try to bring some comfort to the people of this island. Julia? Yeah, tragic images we're showing you there. Gloria, thank you. Gloria Pasmino. Okay, turning now to Sudan and what's been called one of the worst days in Darfur's genocide-scarred history. Eyewitnesses spoke to CNN about a gruesome massacre that unfolded in West Darfur two months ago. Anema Al-Bagir has this exclusive report, and I must warn you, some of the images that you're about to see are graphic, and the report does also include distressing descriptions of the conflict. The streets of Al-Jinena in Sudan's Darfur region are eerily quiet. Filmed at great risk by survivors, the video shows racist graffiti defacing walls and corpses littering the streets. Seen here in their own propaganda, Sudan's paramilitary rapid support forces, RSF, occupied Jinena in June. Uh, After a heavy shelling campaign and fighting in their war for dominance over Sudan's army, a CNN investigation has now uncovered some of the cost of the RSF's victory here in Jinena. Survivors, aid workers and body collectors described to CNN how, together with their allies, the RSF gunned down hundreds of civilians in and around Jinena on June 15th. 
in one of the most violent massacres to date in the recent history of this genocide-scarred Sudanese region. Using satellite images, eyewitness testimony and geolocating what few videos have made it through, the telecommunications blackout cutting that four off from the world. I lost eight members of my family that day during the escape from Al Janina to Chad. This man says he buried hundreds of victims in that force since April. But on that day, he couldn't even reach his slain relatives. The RSF's troops are drawn from Darfuri Arab tribes and, together with its leader, Mohammed Hamdan Degelo, a.k.a. Hemeti, are implicated in the years-long genocide in the region against African tribal groupings. It's unsurprising, then, that the war between the RSF and Sudan's military for control of the country took an even more sinister turn here in Darfur, mirroring the RSF's previous tactics, forcing civilians to flee, many, arriving in Jinena. That is until June 14th, when the West Darfur governor, seen here at his arrest by the RSF, was executed. The RSF, blamed for the killing, denies responsibility. As hundreds attempted to flee, they were harassed and threatened. Even children joined in. A lucky few made it to Chad. They were going into houses killing people. Snipers were everywhere. Bringing with them stories of ethnic targeting. On the road out of the city, we were stopped and searched. They took our phones. Men were separated from the women so they could kill us. We ran, but they shot some of us. Evidence shows much of the killing occurred here outside the main hospital in Jinena. Then, fleeing civilians were ambushed again in Wadi Kaja. Satellite images show the river, which is usually shallow enough for cars to cross, had water running high that day. Scores struggled in the water, some shot as they drowned. Survivors say they heard gunfire from all directions. I saw 17 kids who were shot dead, then thrown into the water. This was one of the most surreal scenes I've witnessed. Even as they fled Jinena for Adre, across the border in Chad, our evidence shows men, women and children were shot as they fled. At the MSF hospital in Chad, survivors arrived with gunshot wounds in the back, legs and buttocks, the lead doctor told CNN. All injuries consistent with being shot from the back. Over 850 people flooded the hospital in Adre between June 15th to 17th, according to MSF, more than any other period since fighting began in April. Body collectors say, according to their count, around 1,000 people were killed on the day of June 15th, buried in dozens of mass graves. Survivors say the RSF is replicating these same tactics across the region. Even as their supporters celebrate in the aftermath of mass killings and the sweep of escalating ethnically targeted attacks. A spokesperson for the Rapid Support Forces told CNN that they categorically deny the assertions that we put forward in our reporting without, though, denying any of the specifics that we shared with them. It's also important to note that the RSF have previously denied the findings of an investigation where we uncovered evidence that RSF troops had engaged in rapes. 
before subsequently the leader of the RSF stating that those who had been implicated in violations were to be prosecuted. Ne'mal Bagher, CNN, London. And for more information on how to help Sudanese refugees, you can go to cnn.com slash impact to find a list of humanitarian organizations that are providing aid and then you can help support. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to First Move. There's been plenty of headlines over the years heralding the demise of the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency of choice, with certainly an increasing number of countries seeking out and looking at alternatives, not to mention, of course, the rise of crypto and decentralized coins, as they're known, that don't rely on governments at all. Now, in 2001, U.S. dollar assets represented nearly 73 percent of global bank reserves. Well, now that figure's fallen to around 58%, according to RBC Wealth Management. Now, some of that is down to diversification into currencies like the euro, for example. But also in play here are fears over stability, both political and economic. And we can also include perhaps the de facto weaponization of the dollar in recent months, cutting Russia from the financial system. Well, my next guest, Brian Brooks, advocates a digital dollar-backed stablecoin. He says think of it as a prepaid cash card not tied to a major institution like a bank. And in a recent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, he called for guidelines and regulations. And that's exactly where the U.S. seemed to be headed until House Democrats suddenly turned their backs on this bipartisan stablecoin bill. Now, Brian Brooks is a partner at Valor Capital Group. He was also briefly the CEO of Binance US, and he joins us now. Brian, fantastic to have you on the show. I want to talk about the op-ed clearly, but I also want to take a step back for my audience that may be even scratching their heads at this moment. Explain what a stable coin is and why you see benefits above and beyond the cash US dollar. Well, Julia, thanks for having me and thanks for the question. You know, stablecoins sound funny because all of the language of the crypto world sounds funny, but the concept is really familiar, I think, to most of your viewers. The concept is just the modern internet iteration of things from past generations like traveler's checks or, as you say, prepaid cards. The concept is the holder of this instrument has something that is a claim on dollars deposited someplace and that instrument can be traded and used for payments for goods and services, and the recipient can redeem that stablecoin for a dollar. So if you think back 50 years to when we used to take out traveler's checks, if you and I are holding up for that, the idea was you would purchase a book of traveler's checks and you could go anywhere in the world. 
And those traveler's checks, even though they weren't cash, would be accepted as cash because the recipient knew that somewhere American Express had dollars on deposits. And that was a way that people abroad could access the dollar system. Stable coins are just different because they're native to the internet. They don't require an underlying bank account. And that's why they've become so important in countries where dollars themselves aren't readily accessible. Dollar equivalents that don't require a U.S. bank account. That's kind of a big idea. Yeah, and this is the basic point. And the crux of your op-ed is saying, look, we need to provide guidelines. We need to regulate these stable coins, allow them to flourish. And not only do they provide a benefit to perhaps global citizens around the world that have, for example, high inflation economies and are worried about their own currencies and the value of them, but it could also be beneficial to the United States at a time where questions are being asked perhaps about the the stability of, of the US dollar or at least the behavior perhaps of policymakers here. Well, Explain that. Yeah, that, that, that is exactly right. And, and, I, and I think the world that we live in today, you had mentioned the weaponization of the dollar. Governments around the world are fighting dollar dominance. And we've all grown up in a dollar-denominated world since World War II. We have a lot of luxuries and benefits that come from that fact lower borrowing costs, cheaper goods and services for people who hold dollars, and things that Americans enjoy every single day. Governments around the world, for political reasons, are trying to decouple from the dollar. The point about stablecoins is the citizens of some of these other countries don't want to decouple from the dollar, because for all of our problems, the dollar remains one of the most stable and most widely accepted currencies. So the concept is stablecoins are a way of allowing citizens of countries like Russia India, Brazil, those kinds of places, to hold their assets in dollars and to maintain demand for our currency at a time when other governments don't want to do that. I think a great example of this, perhaps, is Brazil and Argentina, because they're sort of looking at signing agreements with the Chinese government, which is a great example to boost the use of the, the Chinese renminbi. At the same time, you know, you have the citizens and you're talking about separating the decisions of a government from that of citizens that are saying, look, actually, we'd quite like to hold U.S. dollars. The distinction here between state and citizen is vital. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right, Julia. So I've spent some time in Brazil very recently with a group of bankers and a group of fintech and crypto founders who all say the same thing. You know, the, the recent government uh, in Brazil is a more left-leaning government with generally more willingness to engage with China than the prior government. And you're seeing the kinds of things you're talking about, which never would have been heard of 10 years ago. The idea of doing a renminbi-denominated trade deal never would have been thought of 10 years ago. But the fact that it's within the realm of discussion today, that's the problem. And yet people on the ground in Rio and Sao Paulo, they want to hold dollars. That again is where stable coins come in. It's hard for them to hold dollars because their banks won't support those kinds of accounts. But stable coins make it possible for them to hold dollars in a wallet on the internet. That's the revolution I'm really talking about. What we also saw in, in the last couple of weeks was a debt downgrade from the United States by one of the big rating agencies and barely anything happened. And, and that wouldn't be the case if the United States didn't have the world's uh, deepest, most liquid bond market and the US dollar being the world's reserve currency. It gives them a protection, I think, that other countries don't enjoy. You can understand those that might not really understand what's going on and look at this and say, hang on a second, developing providing guidelines, regulating and promoting stable coins and other crypto, as an example, might detract from the use of the US dollar. Why is that a spurious argument, Brian? 
Yeah, well, so Julia, I, I think there are a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, it's important that people separate the concept of stable coins, which really just are an internet-enabled prepaid card, okay, from things like Bitcoin, which are an entirely different animal altogether. They have a different valuation framework. They trade more like stocks and bonds and less like cash assets than, than stable coins do. But cryptocurrency blockchains are what enable stable coins to be secure and to transact instantly on the internet. That's, that's the first difference that's really important here. But the second and more important point, I, I think, is you're right. When the debt downgrade happened just a couple of weeks ago, not very much happened in markets, which is why a lot of people might think, who cares? This is not that big of a deal. And my answer to that is, you know, 20 years ago when the dollar was 73% of all reserve currencies, we had a big buffer. You know, we were very clearly the asset of choice globally for any major transaction. We're now at just north of 58%. Somewhere between 58% and 50% is a rapid cliff that we will go over if we're not very careful. And so, yes, at 58%, we're still a solid enough currency to absorb those kinds of shocks. And, you know, with the next fiscal cliff, depending on when it, where it is, maybe we'll have enough buffer to survive that too. But we're getting awfully close to an edge that we should be worried about. And so anything that makes dollars more attractive, that increases the demand for dollars, is ultimately good for the role of the dollar in the system. Yeah, and some fiscal prudency perhaps too, but that's another conversation. Okay, good so luck. why? <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. Okay, so why would the top Democrat on the House Financial Services Committee, um, I'm talking about Maxine Waters, work for a year on a bipartisan bill that was looking to regulate, to promote, to help guide, I think, people using stablecoins, and then suddenly turn around and go, actually, uh, we're not interested anymore. Brian, what happened? Yeah, it, it's a great question. I think the answer is orders from above. So, so I will say, you know, during my year as controller of the currency in the U.S., I worked very closely with Chairwoman Waters, and I found her to be very smart, very hardworking, and she understood the issues. Um, the about face is just that. It's an about face. And the rumors that people hear are that the White House threatened to veto the bill. So the real question is not why did Chairwoman or former Chairwoman Waters abandon ship? The real question is why is the administration so opposed to all of this? And I think there are a couple of clues. One is it's quite clear that this administration believes that the future of the dollar is central bank digital currencies. This is a whole nother show that you and I have talked about before. We can talk about again. But central bank digital currencies do compete with private stable coins because they're issued and cleared by the Federal Reserve. There, there are issues why one wouldn't want those kinds of assets to be the dominant asset. But, uh, but right now there's a competition going on. And the second thing is stable coins sit on top of blockchains. And for whatever reason, the administration doesn't seem to be excited about blockchains because they're permissionless, they're private, and they're not controlled by the government in the same way that the current banking and payment system is. And I think that scares some regulatory officials. So we have to get over that hurdle. There clearly are a number of Democrats who've already done that. The bill in the House that passed two weeks ago out of a committee did have some Democratic support, but I think the leadership at the moment is opposed for the reasons I've just said. Yeah. So basically, it's about better education. It's actually not about recognizing that the sort of re-dollarization as opposed to the de-dollarization of the global economy is important, but just understanding how each of these things works and actually that it doesn't have to be um, negative. In fact, it can be very positive. I, 
I, I think that's right. And that was the point of the op-ed was just to connect those dots for people. Right. I, you know, I think a lot of times people look at things in isolation and don't understand how these pieces fit together. But the main point is anything that increases demand for the dollar is a good thing for the country. Very quickly, because I've got one minute. I can understand in the face of the FTX blow up, some of the turbulence, the volatility that people would go, now is not the time to be doing this, Brian. What is going on in the industry today in a sort of post FTX blow up world? Well, I mean, look, this is a sector that's had more than its fair share of frauds and scams out there. And those, I think, are now being uncovered and litigated, uh, which is a good thing for the sector. But what I keep coming back to is there have been far more failures of public company scams and U.S. stock promotion scams. You know, you think back to the era that brought us uh, Dodd-Frank and Sarbanes-Oxley, the era of things like WorldCom and, uh, uh, you know, uh, other sort of uh, frauds of that era, um, Enron, for example. And nobody thought that we should close the stock market because there was a fair amount of scams going on inside of the public uh, equities markets. I think here the issue is people are scared of technology and things that are new and uncontrolled are things that frighten them. That, again, is why the only way forward is through a credible bipartisan regulatory framework that creates confidence that this business is for real and isn't a bunch of people um, of the FTX variety. Until we have that, a certain segment of the population will always see this as too new for school and they won't understand it. Yeah, just got to do more reading and more research and try and understand uh, more. Brian, it's always great to get your perspective and wisdom. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running with the bulls, hoping for a turnaround Thursday across the board gains in early trade after back-to-back losses for the major averages for the past couple of days. News that Walmart is upping its full-year guidance is certainly helping the market mood, but of course fears that interest rates must remain higher for longer due to inflationary pressures also continues as a dominant market theme. The yield on the benchmark U.S. 10-year bond is nearing 4.3 percent. That's levels not seen in well over a decade. U.S. borrowing costs likewise are rising as the latest Fed minutes show some central bank officials are still in favor of hiking interest rates if necessary. Now, the world's largest economy may be showing renewed signs of strength, but the outlook for the globe's second largest economy, yes, I'm talking China, remains far from certain. In Beijing this week, citizens have staged rare protests outside one of the country's largest shadow banks. They say the financial institution Zongrong International Trust owes them money on investment products that have now matured and have made a profit. They say the bank assured them they were putting money into safe investments. The reality might be that those investments are tied to troubled real estate holdings. That, at least, is according to Bloomberg. Remember, the property sector represents around 28% of the economy in China. And the fear is that recent shadow bank defaults could have a negative ripple effect across the broader economy. Now, new trouble for X. The platform formerly known as Twitter, at least two brands say they will suspend advertising after their ads and those of other companies were run on an account promoting fascism. A watchdog says ads for several mainstream brands ran on the account, which also shared content celebrating Hitler and the Nazis. Claire Duffy is joining us now. Claire, can you explain exactly what happened here and Doesn't X have safety measures, limitations, keyword searches that should prevent advertising being um, pushed or promoted on these kind of platforms? 
Yeah, Julia. So this media watchdog put out this report yesterday that showed ads for numerous mainstream brands running on this page for this account, promoting, really blatantly promoting the Nazi party, celebrating Hitler. And so we looked into this ourselves and also found ads for brands like Adobe, the pharmaceutical company Gilead Sciences, the Internet and Television Association, NYU Langone Hospital running on this page. Now, it's important to note that ads on X are placed via automated software. And as you said, this platform has been urging advertisers to return promoting these safety controls that it says it has that are meant to avoid ads landing on just this kind of objectionable content. Just last week, CEO Linda Yaccarino was, again, promoting these safety controls, saying that many advertisers have returned to the platform. But there are still clearly issues. The brands that we reached out to about having their ads show up on this page were shocked that their ads had been placed next to this kind of content. And the Internet and Television Association and Gilead Sciences said they both immediately paused their ad spending on Twitter X after we had alerted this, uh, alerted them to this problem. The Internet and Television Association also said that they had actually been using some of these safety controls that are meant to avoid just this kind of thing happening. They told their spokesperson told me that brand safety will remain an utmost priority, which means suspending advertising on Twitter X for the foreseeable future and heavily limiting the brand's organic presence on the platform. Now, Twitter did not respond to a request for comment from CNN, but it did about midday yesterday suspend this account from the platform, which I think really underscores the fact that this company was running advertisements, was playing placing advertisements next to content that violated its rules enough for it to then suspend this account from the platform, Julia. Yeah, it's really hard to get a relative measure and the data to compare before Elon Musk and after Elon Musk. And if we would have noticed this at all, had this watchdog not raised the flag. Um, But point is, I think that uh, advertisers certainly have to be aware and uh, we have to police the Internet ourselves. Claire Duffy, thank you. Okay, coming up, the Mai Fire is a new type of disaster fueled in part at least by climate change. My next guest says business can help at the cost of just 1% of their annual sales. We'll discuss next. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to First Move. I'm returning to one of our top stories today. The agonizing search for victims continues in Hawaii after the island of Maui was ravaged by an unprecedented wind-driven wildfire. Governor Josh Green stressed the role of climate change in the disaster, saying, quote, that that level of destruction and a fire hurricane is something new to us in this age of global warming was the ultimate reason that so many people perished. It's a devastating statement that underscores the mission of nonprofit 1% for the planet. The organization requires members to contribute at least 1% of their annual revenue to environmental causes. And joining us now is the CEO of 1% for the planet, Kate Williams. Kate, great to have you on the show. I know there's a little bit more flexibility around that 1%, but we'll get to it. Just start by explaining the premise behind your organization. Sure. Yeah, the idea is that businesses and nonprofits connected together can drive really powerful impact. So the way our model works is that each business, and we have small businesses at the grassroots, 
We have large businesses that are at global at scale who are each giving 1% to environmental partners, environmental nonprofits that are driving change in all sorts of areas, including climate change. Yes. And it's 1% of revenues, just to be clear. It's not 1% of profits. So I guess the higher margin business, um, the better because they've got room to manoeuvre. But they can also provide 1% of the revenues of a specific brand if they want to or a specific product. So and then that gets the 1% for the planet seal of approval effectively. That's correct. And really the thinking behind that is it's important that it's a high bar and our belief and the, the what our community joins around is that, you know, really that 1%, it's like making a commitment, you pay your staff, you pay your rent and you pay the planet. And, you know, as we can see with what's going on now, that's only increasingly important. OK, so let's say it's a company that has revenues of $100 million. I guess they show you what their annual revenues are. And then they say, right, so that gives us $1 million now to play with. What happens to that money? Do you control some of that? Do they pay some of that to you? What happens? Yeah, it's a great question. So it's a it's a simple model. And the way it works is that there's a small dues fee that's part of that 1% that's paid to us. And then the rest of the 1%, we coordinate with that company. We work very closely with them to help them to figure out what's their strategy how do we, they want to allocate that giving? How do they want to move giving from, you know, being a kind of end of the year extra to being something that's really core to their strategy that helps them to uh, solve uh, issues along their supply chain, to address operational challenges, to engage their employees? You know, there are many different ways that giving can be part of the strategy, and we help them to figure that out. And then our environmental partners team vets nonprofits, um, and so we're able to then offer up a set of nonprofits that meet that strategy of that company. And then they give directly. Um, we really believe in those direct partnerships. And then at the end of each year, we have a certification process that involves um, us getting the documentation on that giving as well as on the revenues from each member. So part of what you do as, a, as an organization is you vet where the money's going and you build a sort of portfolio for some of these companies to say, look, if this is what you want to be doing with your money, then these are perhaps the best options for you. Is that the key? Exactly. You know, our our expertise is in environmental philanthropy and each company has an expertise in, you know, what they're delivering as a product or a service. So we really step into that space in between the business and the nonprofit sector to provide our expertise to help companies to be able to drive impact by allocating their resources into the nonprofit sector. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. It, it just so that I'm clear, can you tell me what your fee is for that and how much of that then is plowed back into the organization? Yeah, we um, our fees are quite small, actually, when it comes down to it. They're graded by um, different levels across the different um, nonprofit, or excuse me, across the different member budget sizes. So um, it, it's really a small percentage of the 1%, you know, depending a little bit on the size of the company. Okay. And as a percentage of the amount that that is then used to do the research and, and do the analysis, can you give me that percent? Yeah. So we get about, um, and I can give you sort of a, a ratio that might be helpful. We get a, yeah. about 5 million in the last year, we got about 5 million in dues and that um, equated to close to a hundred million in giving going out to our environmental partners. So, you know, that gives you a sense of the ratio, most of the funds, and that's very much our focus. And it's part of why we have that direct giving model. Most of our funds are going right out to those environmental partners. 
Yeah, it is important because I think people are more and more sensitive to this because there's so many causes out there that people want to provide to. Do you have members from the gas and oil sector, by the way? Would they be welcome? Banks is another great example that have exposure, perhaps, to the fossil fuel industry. Are you willing to accept them as part of of the deal? Because it gets sort of complicated in terms of, um, I guess, morals, ethics, what they're willing to provide. Where do you stand on those? Yeah, it's a terrific question. And, you know, we have our, our approach generally is to have a really big tent. Um, we, we believe in progress, not perfection. And our goal is to have members at every stage of the journey. So some of whom their 1% commitment might be the first time they're stepping into taking environmental action. For others, it might be, you know, much farther along the path. Um, and so we don't have any outright prohibitions against any particular types of companies. That said, we do on a case-by-case basis determine if a company joining would be brand damaging. So at this point, we don't have anything, any companies in the oil and gas industry. I think if they were to um, approach us, we would have the conversation and then we would see if we could be part of meaningful change and make a determination from there. Because one of the really important things for us is that you know, seeing what's happening in the world, world right now, um, it's going to take all players. There's no one you know, one agent who can make all the change happen. So it's truly collective action. And so the more we can stay in the conversation with grassroots nonprofits, with local government, with the big multinational companies and everything in between, the better we can create that community of change makers who are really seeing that we have to come together to create a resilient future. Yeah, I strongly agree with you on that. No one can be excluded from this conversation. And I also get your point about not letting uh, perfection get in the way of progress. But it's always that dangerous balance, I think, of allowing greenwashing um, in that process. So um, it's interesting to hear you say that. Um, I just wanted to ask about Maui. Do you have um, charities that support the efforts there or anyone that's working there? Because obviously this is just the latest sort of devastating situation that we're seeing. And obviously officials there in some part are suggesting this is tied to to climate change. Yeah, we absolutely do. And one of the things that we're able to do because we have such a strong global network that shows up really locally is when there are disasters like this, we are able to, um, you know, pretty quickly pull together a set of local uh, nonprofits that people can give to because that's it's a very human response for people to want to be able to pro- provide help. So, you know, for this particular um, tragedy in Maui, we have identified um, a number of nonprofits that we've shared across our network and publicly. And I'm happy to list those here if you'd like. We will save it for our next conversation because I'm okay. out of time. But Kate, <laughs> great to have you on. Thank you so much for uh, explaining what you and your guys are doing. The CEO there of One Percent for the Planet. Okay, coming up after the break, Richard Quest on a horse. I mean, really, what more do we need to know? My intrepid friend explores the Mongolian economy in a way only Richard could and can. That's next. Now on CNN later today, Quest Means Business comes live from Mongolia. It's a vast country in East Asia with just two neighbours and a complicated geopolitical landscape. To the north is Russia, to the south, China. Now, the economy is forecast to see accelerating growth this year to 5.2 percent. That's according to the World Bank. And while progress has been made in reducing poverty, growth is sometimes uneven and has slowed in recent years. 
And now for some trivia. There are more horses than people in Mongolia. And that's got Richard Quest's name all over it. Perhaps we should call him Richard Equestrian. Watch this. So where are we going? We go down. Okay, all right, fine. I get the feeling uh. that the guy doesn't trust me since uh. I'm sort of tethered to him whilst <laughs> you're roaming free. <laughs> Come on, let's catch you up. This Mongolian horse were the most strong horses. During the Second World War, Mongolian horses were the best horses in the fight against uh, Germans. This is gorgeous. Look at those mountain crags right ahead of me and the scenery. I mean, it doesn't get much better than this. <laughs> There's only one of us that's in charge and it's not you. And the way you just stopped told me it's not me either. Why do you keep wanting to stop? Go! You hear about Mongolia and just how beautiful the natural uh, country is, but you've really got to see it to believe it. And even then, it doesn't fully do it justice. It's truly remarkable. And I've only seen a small part. All right, we're going back because he is starting to realize that food is that direction. And if it comes to a battle between me and this beast, I'm going to lose. Is the big risk that Mongolia screws it all up? The environment, the geopolitical, it's got everything. It's beautiful, it's, people are charming and delightful. And I just wonder, is the risk that you manage to mess it all up? I think down the road, we will, we will be fine. We will, because it's a country where, like any democratic country, where we can freely discuss the problem then we can solve. If you don't discuss the problem or the problem is solved by one guy, there is a risk. That's why I strongly believe that we will not bring uh, my country to that point. I'll admit I've got to go and watch it again because I was too busy watching Richard on the horse. Plenty more from Mongolia, though, in quest means business tonight. The CEO of Mongolian Stock Exchange, the chairman of parliament and the executive chair of ARD, all coming up. That's 8 p.m. Thursday in London and an eye-watering 3 a.m. Friday in Mongolia. Don't worry, I'm sure they'll be watching. That's it for the show. Connect the World is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.